Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. In our last episode, Keegan Chandler presented his case against the classic doctrine of original sin. Today, we're going to hear a critique from Jerry Weirwill of Chandler's presentation. Now, Weirwill is a translator of the Bible. He is an expert in Paul's writings in particular, and he is going to be commenting extensively on Romans 5, 12 through 21 in order to make the case for a middle position between Augustine and Chandler. Weirwill agrees with Augustine that Adam's sin corrupted human nature so that we are all born with rebelliousness in our hearts, but he also agrees with Chandler that these impulses are resistible, especially with God's Spirit living within us. We'll see what you think. Here now is part two of our four-part series on original sin, Inherited Sin in Romans 5 with Jerry Weirwill. Welcome to Restitutio, Dr. Jerry Weirwill. So glad to have you today. Thanks. Glad to be here. Today we're talking about a presentation made last year at Restoration Fellowship's Theological Conference by Keegan Chandler. This was our episode from last week, and to this week we are going to be responding to it, and I'll be asking Jerry some questions about his exegesis of the same passage. Uh, now to start off, what would you say about the historical content that made up the bulk of his presentation. I think we first need to definitely acknowledge the thoroughness with which Keegan tried to trace the origins of Augustine's uh, thoughts um, on original sin. And I think he did an exceptional job. You know, he went through a lot of uh, early church father writings. He went through like the Epistle of Barnabas. He went through writings of Justin Martyr. And uh, then he went and actually did some uh, good uh, descriptions of, of this group called the Incratites um, and Tatian. And so he did a lot of this background work on where did Augustine get this idea about original sin from? Uh, and so I think we you know, definitely need to be tipping our hat to him for such a thorough job of uh, this church historian work he did. Uh, to try to uh, determine what could have been the source material. And, I mean, he ends up, you know, he goes through uh, things with Clement of Alexandria, Cyprian, Ambrose, Jerome, and, and others, and then uh, finally comes up to uh, one of Augustine's opponents, Julian, and he falls down on the most likely place that Augustine drew his thought was from the teachings of the Manichaeans where Augustine did hold different views to the Manichaeans, but on the uh, idea of original sin and the effects of sin um, within a person, uh, they were very similar. And so I think that was where Keegan Chandler's conclusion led, and I just think he did a, a wonderful job. And so I wanted to acknowledge all that labor of the church historian work he did. Yeah. As I recall, the Cyprian influence, he did admit that Cyprian influenced Augustine, uh, and he would he would have been a century earlier, because Cyprian does talk about infant baptism as washing away guilt, and obviously an infant is not able to sin, you know, uh, or really do much of anything, but 
But that's not the full-blown system. And I think it is important to recognize as we go through here that what, what Keegan presented was a, a doctrinal package, not a single doctrine. In other words, we're not just talking about the question of original sin. We're, we're looking at Augustine's particular way of formulating the doctrine of original sin, which includes a bondage of the will. It includes what later theologians would, would describe as total depravity. Do you think that's fair to say? Yeah, um, and that's what Keegan sets out is this definition of original sin from Augustine, which he defines as sin guilt that is transmitted to every human being and that this transmission affects a binding of the will, which forces a person to sin. And so that's the particular version of original sin that uh, Keegan is coming against. So if, if we wanted to unpack it a little bit, maybe we would say that what Keegan fought against in this presentation was Augustine's understanding of original sin. And he did that by showing that Augustine's influence was not from a Christian source or from the Bible, but from pagan Manichaean Gnosticizing tendencies that he had picked up by studying with them for 10 years. And that Augustine, or uh, as a lot of people call him Augustine, that he was influenced by the Manichaeans is, is beyond doubt. I mean, he says it himself in his book, The Confessions, he talks all about it, and that he was influenced by Neoplatonism is without question, and that he was influenced by Ambrose is without question. So, um, you know, I think it is a, certainly a plausible theory that Keegan puts forward that uh, he got these ideas from his previous religious group that he was a part of for 10 years, but at the same time, that's not necessarily what we are interested in here today, is not really tracing the genealogy. I think in order to even fact-check Keegan's work on that, it would take a lot of reading, because you really have to read a lot of uh, Ambrose and Ambrosiaster and Jerome and Cyprian, and you know these are the ones that Augustine himself fingered as his influencers, that he's not innovating, he's teaching what's always been taught. And, you know, I believe that Keegan is going to be presenting a much more robust argument for this in the future. He, he mentioned maybe writing another book. I don't know how many books this guy wants to write. <laughs> what, what do you think? I think he's got, he's got a whole bunch in, in the back of his mind. Um, it's incredible. I, I think, though, that you're right, because uh, the f emphasis that I want to uh, examine here is not about whether... Augustine's own personal struggle with sin was the reason for why he developed the doctrine, um, or you know his his faulty reasoning on that. Well, because infants die and sin brings death, and therefore infants must have sin. Or I mean, we're going to talk about his Vulgate dependence as well. But really, it's I want to look at the scriptures. Uh, look specifically at Romans chapter five. And we'll also touch on probably Romans 7, uh, 1 Corinthians 15. But to look at how does the New Testament present the issues of sin and death and their connection. Okay. That's where we're headed for this episode. We want to give this subject of original sin the question, what is the effect of primal sin? 
does the Bible teach that this original sin is then passed down generation by generation? And does that affect our ability to choose, our human will? And uh, I think we'll probably also get into the subject of perfectionism, uh, which it seemed like Keegan was advocating for, that if you are redeemed, that if you do have not only forgiveness, but also uh, the empowerment of God's Spirit within you, that you you can live a perfect, a morally perfect lifestyle. Uh, so let's let's get into it. Where should we start? Should we just start with Romans 5, or what do you think? Yeah, Romans 5, and the section of interest here begins in verse 12. Now, Keegan did talk about the issues from Augustine with the dependence upon the Latin Vulgate, which translates Romans 5.12 as... Uh, wherefore, as by one man sin entered into this world, and by sin death, and so death passed upon all men in whom all have sinned. Uh, it translates the, the Greek phrase there, the ho pantes hemarton, as in quo omnes precaverunt, so in whom all have sinned. And so from there, that's where Augustine developed this idea of his uh, traducian theory of sin, that somehow everybody, or the participationist view, I think would be probably more accurate to describe it, that people, somehow, every person has participated in the sin that Adam committed in the Garden of Eden. All right, let me, let me just pause you there. I, I want to read out the text just in a modern translation. Uh, here's the ESV. Therefore, just at, for this is the ESV for Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. That text there really is at the, the center of Keegan's question about, do we, should we really believe that Adam's original sin affects us today, taints us today, metaphysically deforms us in some way today. And it really all comes down to this one verse. And you, what you're saying is that this phrase at the end, because all sinned, is an unusual phrase that the, uh, the Latins translated because in him all sinned. And you use this word traducian, uh, which that's not a common word, Jerry. Um, it just it just means that uh, it's a theory of the way that sin has been spread, that uh, through the propagation of uh, soul life from Adam, that everybody then somehow is also receiving a part of that corrupted soul or the effect of sin from what is called primal sin, which when Adam uh, decided to disobey in the Garden of Eden and and sin against God. That is called primal sin. Now then, there's, that's a difference between inherited or original sin, meaning that all of his progeny then, are they born with sin or a sinfulness in them? And so to try to distinguish, if we're talking about primal sin, we're talking about just Adam's sin versus inherited or original sin would be all of humanity, are they also receiving an effect from what Adam did. Yeah, I've got a definition here from Merriam-Webster, of all places, uh, which says, for traducianism, a theological doctrine that the human souls of new infants are generated from the souls of their parents at the moment of conception 
much in the same manner as the generation of human bodies. Uh, so I don't. Does that make you a traditionist, Jerry? Or uh, I don't. I'm not really sure. <laughs> I guess I have to think about it. Uh, I don't. I don't really have a particular theory that I, I hold. Do you have fast a soul to. theory? No, I, I don't have a particular theory I hold fast yeah. to. But the difference between like the tradition theory and and something like Augustine's, I think his participation theory is that he looks more ontologically at that there is just something, uh, a metaphysical change that happened in Adam, and somehow all humanity is looked at as some as participating in Adam's loins or, or somehow metaphysically connected to that act of sin itself. Yeah, so, so the traditionists would say that their soul was actually in Adam because it's a direct descendant of Adam, and each time a, a pair of humans have a kid, their soul is imparted to that child, which is, seems to me like a pretty out-there doctrine because uh, I, th- I think you can have at least a couple of other ways of thinking about it. You have, I don't know if it's the Catholic doctrine, but the idea that God imparts a soul, like creates a new soul mm-hmm. yep. at the moment of conception, theory. right? Yep. Uh, so that would avoid this. Uh, then there's the idea of just like physicalism, that the soul emerges as a result of the physical components being there. Uh, I don't know what the other options are, but... It is interesting to, to think that that's like that the very particular, almost like biological description that they're working with that gives rise to this doctrine. All right, so uh, let's let's get into the grammar a little bit. One of the cases that Keegan made is that this little phrase in Romans 5.12, translated because all sinned, that this, this little prepositional phrase uh, should be translated with the result that, as opposed to because. Now, it's interesting, because when I look at this phrase, uh, this this second word here, the word o or ho, is uh, it's obviously a dative uh, relative pronoun, but it, I guess it could be neuter or masculine. And the phrase literally translated would be something like upon which, if it's neuter, uh, but that's not... That's a nonsensical translation in this case. So, the, so w- walk us through here what you think about this phrase uh, from a grammatical point of view. Well, you're right. This phrase um, is, is difficult, and it's a little odd. Uh, and this has been a source of a lot of controversy among scholars. Uh, there basically are, are five ways that scholars have proposed to understand this uh, prepositional phrase with the relative pronoun, F-ho. The first one would be what Keegan is arguing for, which is that it refers to with the result that all sinned, and in this way, death came to all. The second way would be the idea of Augustine, that it would be in whom all sinned, which would be in Adam. The third way would be to look at it causally as because in Adam all sinned. Another way could be that it's translated or understood as a nuance of by imitating Adam. There's really no grammatical evidence for this particular translation, but it's, uh, it's more theologically suggestive by some scholars that this is what Paul's trying to say. And then the last one is that uh, all sinned, but then the explanation be these all sinned voluntarily. So because all sinned voluntarily in their own persons, but as a result of the of some sort of inherited corrupt nature from Adam. 
So these have been the five ways to understand this phrase traditionally. And Keegan is arguing that the with the result that all sinned is the better way to understand this. And I think that there are three things we need to look at uh, to see once if that actually is a, the best way to understand this phrase. And I think discourse analysis of this section in Romans 5 is what's needed because I don't think we're going to find the answer by just looking strictly at verse 12 alone. We can't take this verse and make it a proof text and try to understand how the grammar should work. We need to look at the surrounding context, look at the flow of Paul's argument. And that argument is basically from verses 12 through 19. All right. Before we get into that, I'm just going to review because this is a technical conversation and I want everyone to be with us as, as we go through here. What we're saying is that we have an unusual Greek prepositional phrase here, and we have five different options for understanding it. We have Keegan's preferred option, which is with the result that. Uh, so, so death spread to all people with the result that all sinned. And Keegan's case was that, in fact, our mortality, the fact that we die, is the impetus for us sinning. And that that's really what got passed down was mortality. And that leads to sin. And he also had another text on that, if you recall. It was that the sting of death is sin. Yeah, First Corinthians 15, 56, I believe. Yeah. So then you have the other idea that in whom, which was Augustine's position, that in whom all sinned, death spread to all, all men, in whom all sinned. Yeah, referring to Adam. Referring to Adam. In whom in whom Adam all sinned, okay? And that's that Traducian thing we were talking about a minute ago, idea we were talking about a minute ago. Then you have the idea of by imitating. So in that case, and so death spread to all men by imitating Adam's behavior. Then you have because, and there are two different kinds of because, and one of the because is it's because in Adam all sinned, and then the other is because in themselves they sinned. Uh, so we have a lot of options to look at, and what you're saying here and what we're aiming to do is to look at the context to figure out the flow of thought in order to get a handle on this, because what you're saying is that just wrestling with the grammar is not going to do it in this case because it is the sort of thing that can go multiple different ways. Yes, that's correct. Okay, let's get to it then. Following verse 12, we have to look at where does Paul then go in his argument? Verse 13 says, indeed, sin was in the world before the law, but sin is not charged to one's account when there is no law. Now, this seems kind of strange statement to follow up verse 12 with. Paul is talking about sin. He says, just through one man's sin. So sin is the focus here. Sin entered the world. And as a result of that sin, it says death came through sin in verse 12. And in this way, death came to all. And then we have the F ho because or with the result that all sinned. Now, Paul wants to talk about sin a little bit. Okay, indeed, sin was in the world before the law. And this law here is referring to Torah, the law of Moses. So sin existed before God gave his law. But it says sin is not charged to one's account when there is no law. So it's kind of like, well, if there was sin before the law, but you have to have the law in order for sin to be counted as sin, then, wow, that, that's back. Paul's like contradicting himself. What does this mean? 
Well, Paul's trying to say that the sin that came into the world was based upon a commandment that God gave to Adam, which he broke. And so even after Adam, Paul will say in verse 14, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. So he's trying to say, even before the law, there was sin. And so people committed sin. And therefore, he's saying, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even when there was no law, even when sin couldn't be counted as being like you actually transgressed against a commandment of God. And so I think what Paul is developing here is the point that sin that produced death was something that happened apart from law. Even if it couldn't be said that somebody broke a specific commandment that God gave, like in the law of Moses, that people were actually still doing what was wrong in God's eyes, and they were receiving the death that comes from that. So that is basically saying that sin produces death, is what his point is, I believe. At the end, and then in 15, now he, he kind of changes from Adam to what he says, Adam is a type of the coming one. In verse 15, but the free gift is not like the transgression. Okay, well, what transgression? This is referring to Adam's transgression back in verse 14. And the free gift is going to be, we have to follow to the end, is referring to the free gift of righteousness and thus eternal life. That is going to be through the coming one. For if many died, it says in verse 15, through the transgression of one man, much more surely did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to many. Now here I think is where Paul's argument develops into what I see as being something of inherited sin or the what we would say as being the effects of primal sin, of Adam's sin, that if many died through the transgression of one man, so the primal sin of Adam then caused death to spread to all people. But Paul doesn't specifically say how death spread to all people yet. It's just he's making a claim on that fact itself. Now verse 16, And the free gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment came from one transgression resulting in condemnation. So now I think he's developing it further. What did that transgression yield and why did death then result from it? He's saying that judgment, God's judgment, came from one transgression. This is the primal sin of Adam. And it resulted in condemnation. It resulted in condemnation for Adam but then also resulted in condemnation for everyone after Adam. This will be more plain in verse 18 as we get down to it. Let's finish verse 16 here. And on the other hand, the free gift came after many transgressions resulting in a verdict of righteous. Verse 17, for if by the transgression of the one, so for if by the primal sin of Adam, death reigned through the one, through Adam, much more surely were those who received the abundance of, of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. And now here's his conclusion then, after laying all these arguments out. So then, verse 18, just as one transgression, Adam's primal sin, 
just as one transgression resulted in condemnation for all people. This is not death for all people. He's saying condemnation. See, something that Adam did brought God's judgment upon his progeny, resulting in condemnation of them. But it goes on to say, so also one act of righteousness resulted in righteousness that brings life for all people. Verse 19, for just as through one man's disobedience, so, so just as through Adam's primal sin, many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one, Christ, the many will be made righteous. Now, I think there are two important reasons why I see Paul laying out an aspect of some sort of inherited sin here that comes from Adam's primal sin and has spread to all humankind. And I don't know how it spreads, so I'm not going to venture into trying to make up a theory about that. But here in the actual text of Scripture, we have two things. One is the context of which we look at how Paul develops his argument from verses 12 through 19, which expands and explains why through sin, then death reigns, and how come all people have experienced death and how all people have sinned, then also I think the relationship, the analogical relationship he makes between Adam and Christ, I think is also extremely significant. So let's talk about first the context. I tried to point out through here, as Paul was revealing his point about sin and what sin did and how death reigned from Adam to Moses because of sin, even though there was no law and people didn't sin like Adam did, people still died. And so there was, there was death. But because of that transgression, many people died. But then there's something the opposite. There's this gift of God that's supposed to counteract that death. And that comes through a different man, the second Adam, Jesus Christ. And so the gift is not like the transgression that came through Adam. Because Paul says judgment came from the transgression, resulting in condemnation. But the gift, after all this transgression, it resulted in righteousness, verse 16. And that is why Paul says that by the transgression of Adam, in verse 17, death then reigned through Adam. And that by the gift of righteousness, which is through Jesus Christ, that life will reign. And the concluding then of that one transgression caused everybody to die, and then one person's obedience will cause many to be righteous and live. So we have this way that Adam's sin caused an entire ripple effect to all of humanity that then gets reversed by the obedient act of Christ, and that has a ripple effect through all humanity. Now, the question comes then, is Adam's sin causing condemnation? Is that because we are condemned based upon Adam's sin, or we are condemned because we sin like Adam? And this would be where Keegan would say, we are all condemned to die because we sin, not because Adam sinned. Well, I think furthermore, he would say that 
we are born morally neutral and there's no reason why we have to sin from the time we we begin to grow up and that that every sin that you have ever committed is because you have made a bad choice and you could have resisted that temptation and don't go blaming some sort of corrupted human nature on the whole thing. Is that a fair, I'm trying to say it in a strong way, but is that, you think fair what he was saying? Yeah, I think that's, that's Keegan's idea is that there's the age of innocence uh, that extends until a person becomes consciously aware of themselves and is capable of making moral choices. Uh, and so I, I think that that's, that's what he's saying. What I would then respond to is I would ask, you know, if you look at what causes death, this idea of mortality is just death. That's just another way to say death. What causes mortality? You know, according to the scriptures, sin is what has made us mortal. And therefore, if children are born mortal, how are they born mortal if they don't have some sort of effect of primal sin that has caused them to be mortal. If they are in a right relationship with God, innocent, not guilty of any sin, then why why are they why is death passed to them from their parents? Yeah, I, I think his case was that you were born mortal, and that is what is passed down from Adam, mortality. That there's no effect on your moral compass, like what you perceive to be right and wrong, your moral self-control, your ability to say, no, I'm not going to do that. These things are untainted in in Mm -hmm. Keegan's view, so far as I understand. And yet the death that is passed down is not because of your behavior. In fact, what he said is the exact opposite, that the mortality that we inherited from Adam which we could have a very easy biological explanation for in our DNA or a lack of access to the tree of life. That mortality generates within us sin because we're, we're, we know we're going to die, so we need to get as much as we can now, and that explains greed. Or we know that we, we don't have ultimate happiness like we would have had in the garden or like we had in the garden, so... We pursue that happiness in other ways, and that explains adultery or other d- destructive behaviors, right? So it seems like what he's doing is he's trying to invert that relationship. For him, it's not that sin causes death, it's that death causes sin. I mean, the first sin caused mortality to afflict the human, all humans, but then after that, it's our mortality that generates in us, that provides for us a motive for sin, but it's entirely resistible in his view. Yeah, I think that I would ask Keegan to demonstrate where that paradigm is found in Scripture. Keegan is is focusing on verse 12 in Romans 5 to try to explain that relationship. And if we want, we can go to uh, 1 Corinthians 15, where I think he also goes uh, where the uh, sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, uh, where it's, if you would look at that, I think he's arguing that the sting of death then produces sin. But the way that that construct is working there is not that the sting of death is sin, isn't that death produces sin. It's that the sting of death is due to sin, just like the law doesn't come from sin. 
the power of sin isn't the law in the sense that the law came from sin. It's that the power of sin is made evident by the law. And that's what Paul's whole argument is in Romans chapter 7, that when the law came, sin came alive, and he learned about all these things inside of him, all these unrighteous and wicked desires, and it slew him, it said. So it's not that death produces sin, because I don't, I don't see that concept in Scripture, so Keegan will have to support that from somewhere other than Romans 5, 12, and 1 Corinthians 15, 56. Because uh, all over the place, we find the relationship between sin and death being that sin brings death. This is something that Paul uh, hammers out big time in Romans chapter 3, especially when all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. And then the, the classic Romans 6.23, that the wages of sin is death. What you get for sin is death. Now, the question we could come down to is whether or not the death we experience is because we have sinned personally or if we are condemned to die because there is some connection between us and the primal sin of Adam as the head of the human race. And I think that's the analogical relationship that Paul is posing here in Romans 5 between Adam and Christ, that Adam as the head of the human race sinned and caused the entire human race to be in a downward spiral leading to death because of that sin. And not just that we die because we're mortal, but somehow there is a sinfulness and the consequences and judgment that that sin brings is accounted to every human being. And just like that, the new human race that is headed up by the Lord Jesus Christ, that every person who is part of the new humanity then receives the righteousness that comes from Christ. Because the analogical relationship only works if what the person who's the head of the humanity is, if their actions then have repercussions or consequences or rewards for those who are part of them. So Adam's sin then has consequences for all humanity that follow him, just like Christ's righteousness then has reward or benefit for those who are part of him. All right. So let me let me back you up to our initial five options here. Would you be willing to just go through all five and discuss them briefly and, and settle on which one you think is the best based on the context? Sure. So the first way we could look at F-ho would be that it means with the result that, and it's uh, referring to death uh, in verse 12, that in this way, death came to all with the result that all sinned. And once again, this is, this is Keegan's uh, position and argument. Um, and I think in the context of verses... To, to be, sorry to interrupt, uh, to be fair... That's, this is also the position of, as, as he said, the Greek Orthodox Church, the Eastern Church. So he's not necessarily coming up with something new here. He mm -hmm. did quote you know, some authority before making his point, but uh, please go on. Yeah, this is, this is not just solely Keegan's view alone. And uh, actually, there, there is one uh, major scholar who has tried to champion this view, um, Joseph Fitzmaier from the Anchor Bible uh, series, uh, if you want to look at his volume on the book of Romans. I think within the context that I just reviewed from verses 12 through 19, I don't think that the fir this first way of understanding F-ho is the best way to understand it. I think it kind of violates the entire paradigm that Paul is setting up 
the linkage between sin, which results in death, and the way that he explains the condemnation and judgment that is upon all people um, after following Adam, not just following in his sin, but who come after him. The second option would be that in this way, death came to all in whom, referring to Adam, all have sinned. And this is uh, the way that Augustine views the passage, uh, and this is the way the Vulgate has translated it. And so it looks at the way that everybody was somehow in was somehow participating with Adam in the sin in the Garden of Eden, and because of that participation, then we are all, we are all culpable of that sin itself. So we are guilty of Adam's sin in some ontologically participation way. Uh, in his loins uh, or, or uh, mystically connected to him, metaphysically. Uh, I, I think that, first of all, this comes from a faulty translation and meaning uh, of F. Ho uh, that the, the Latin has brought out. And so I think that that can, can clear it up uh, in, in the sense that uh, F. Ho really doesn't have that uh, meaning uh, in the Greek like it does in, uh, when it's translated into Latin. The third way would be, uh, in this way, death came to all, because in Adam all sinned. Now, this is not the same as previously uh, being like a participationist view, but because all have collectively sinned in Adam, because Adam's sin as the head of the, of the human race has repercussions for all humans who have come after him. And that somehow there is this aspect of sin that is now propagating throughout the entire human race that brings death to all people. And so the consequences of Adam's sin are then passed on to all his progeny. The fourth uh, way to understand this uh, has no grammatical basis, but yet is offered by scholars. And that's that in this way, death came to all because all sinned by imitating Adam. They look at it because all sinned, but they look at it that death comes to all people because everybody has committed a sin like Adam. As I said, there's really no grammatical evidence for this. And when looking at the strength of the analogical relationship, it, it really kind of doesn't hold any, any water, in my opinion. So I don't really think uh, there, this is a really good option to even consider. It's almost excluded in the next verse anyhow, where it says, verse 14, Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Uh, so that's sort of like an admission that not everyone did sin in the same way. In this, not everyone did recapitulate or imitate Adam's sin. Uh, so I think that's kind of a difficulty for that one. And then uh, what about the last one here? Yeah, so the, the fifth way to understand it would be, in this way, death came to all because all sinned, but they sinned voluntarily in their own persons, However, they sinned because they inherited some sort of corrupt nature. So what that would be is because all people sinned, but they sinned because Adam has somehow corrupted them and, and they then inevitably sinned and therefore death inevitably comes to everybody because nobody can live righteously because of Adam's sin. And that's what you believe? Uh, I would say that the idea of because Adam's sin, um, there's some sort of ontological connection to Adam. Not in the sense of Augustine, like in him uh, we sinned, but because Adam sinned, 
all humanity then is destined to die as connected to the head of that race. But I think that that's one part of it. I also think, though, that every person is born as a sinner, and in their life, they inevitably commit sin. I don't think anybody is is born in a completely neutral will where they don't have evil inclinations in their heart from the moment they're born. You know, I don't think that an infant is consciously aware of their passions and desires of their flesh. But I think when Paul talks about the flesh, I don't think children grow up and at some point their flesh becomes evil and these desires just all of a sudden manifest themselves. I think this is part of what we have gained from Adam, part of the effects of the primal sin in the Garden of Eden. However, I think we are also guilty of our own sin and therefore we all are justly condemned to die. So is that position three or five? It's a mix between three and five. I think they, I think they both <laughs> hold some validity to explain why we see death reigning uh, from the time of Adam until now. Yeah, so uh, this uh, word F, which is really a shortened version of epi, is uh, a preposition in Romans 5.12 that you would take on the basis of something like that. Yeah, I'd say it's bet- between because all sinned in Adam— and because all sin. So I, I think that you know, nobody lives a life without sin. Uh-huh. But I think also people, we all are experiencing death and even infants experience death, not because they have personally sinned, but because of Adam's sin, judgment, God's judgment has come upon all, all people. And I think that people die because they are in the condemnation that Adam has brought upon the human race. So when a baby dies, are you saying that that baby is dying in sin? Uh, Yeah, I think that children who who die are are dying because of a result of of sin that they've received, a form of inherited sin from Adam. And that's why I think when Paul talks about that uh, children can be sanctified by the faith of their parents, well, if a a child has no sin, there's no need for a child to be sanctified by their parents. Hmm. Interesting. So, uh, but what would you say about the salvation of that infant or that baby that is killed in, in the womb? How would God judge that child? Is that child automatically excluded from the kingdom of God because this child was in sin as a result of, you know, however many generations back, one knucklehead, you know? I mean, what do you think? Well, that's a tough question, Sean, because I don't think the Bible really gives a specific answer on how God is going to judge the unborn or or the the very young infants. Uh, you know, I think that the way that God's program has been set up is that people have a choice to receive the righteousness that comes through the one man, Christ Jesus. And I think that Unbelieving parents who have unbelieving children, even young infants, you know, to say that young infants of unbelievers are saved until a certain point in their life and then they're unsaved, um, I don't see that in Scripture. Whereas Augustine's position would be that all babies go to hell, and he believed in an eternal conscious torment, hell, so far as I know, unless their sins are washed away in baptism, right? So you know, 90-something percent, I don't know what percent, a huge percent of all babies in Augustine's time would just be 
who who died would just immediately sink into the the pit of hell and be tortured forever whereas that minuscule number of christians which by his time was starting to get to be pretty considerable in his part of the world at least that you know if they went through this ritual then their child would then be saved if that child died before you know some age of accountability yeah i think keegan mentioned this uh one uh, early christian writer i i don't know i don't remember off the top of my head who it was but that um mothers with their newborn children would be running to the church to get them baptized uh, as soon as soon as possible, even right out of the womb, just because of the sake that unless you're baptized, uh, you don't have redemption and forgiveness of sin. Right, and child mortality was much higher in the in those days, I would yeah. imagine. Huh. So, uh, so this this is uh, this is getting into some in- interesting territory. I, I want to ask about uh, flesh as well, because this is a subject that really touches on original sin, this whole idea of flesh that we see in the Apostle Paul, if I search through my Bible uh, for the word flesh, I encounter it plenty of times, but generally speaking, it just means the meat between my skin and my bones, if I could be (laughs) excessively crass, but just our physical condition, and it's not used in any kind of a moral or negative sense. But uh, once I get to Paul's epistles... I do get this much bigger theologically loaded concept of flesh, maybe with a capital F, I don't know. But uh, we start to encounter this really in Romans chapter 7, canonically speaking. And then it does appear quite a number of places elsewhere. Uh, Romans 7 is that famous chapter, just uh, in case you're not familiar with it. It's that famous chapter where Paul talks about his struggle as a Jew trying to keep the law and this inner motivation or impulse towards rebellion and that the things that he wants to do he doesn't do and the things that he doesn't want to do he does do and and he's just absolutely frustrated by some sort of invisible force within his members that just seeks to rebel against whatever god says is right in the law and then we see in Romans 8 that the victory comes as a result of Christ's work and the, and the Spirit as well, that the Spirit can mortify the deeds of the flesh. And then in Galatians 5, another famous text that many of you are going to be familiar with, you have the works of the flesh juxtaposed against the fruit of the Spirit. And so the works of the flesh listed there are behaviors like strife and jealousy and sexual indulgence, that sort of thing. And then, of course, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and so on. So you really do have this more developed idea in Paul's writings that there is some sort of thing within us, some sort of, I, I don't know, the term I would typically use is fallenness within us that is is almost like pushing us in the wrong way. Another analogy to think of is you have the little angel on the one shoulder and the little demon on the other, and they're both whispering in your ear, Oh, why don't you uh, why don't you go steal that? And then the other voice, oh, but you know I can't do that; it's wrong. And then the other voice says, well, but you'll get away with it, right? And so people have have talked about this and thought about this sort of like inner struggle we have in many different ways. My question for you, Jerry, is: Do you what's your conception of the flesh in this Pauline sense? And and also, do you see this as something that is a, is a consequence of Adam's original sin that we are dealing with? Yeah, Paul really does develop the concept of flesh a lot. Uh, Romans 7, as you mentioned, 
is a, a very important place because he talks here about he knows that nothing good lives in him, he says. Uh, that is, in his flesh. This is uh, 7.18. For I want to do good, but I cannot do it. Um, so he's, he's, first of all, acknowledging that the flesh doesn't have this inherent goodness about it. It doesn't, it doesn't itself want to do God's will. It actually wants to do the opposite. As he goes on here, it says that it's uh, in verse 20 that there is this sin that is living in him. And so he wants to do good. He finds that there is this issue with his flesh. The flesh doesn't want to do what's good. There's sin in his flesh, he's saying. And so he sees these laws at work. There's a law in his members of his body, the flesh part of his body, that is waging war in verse 23 against this law that is in his mind of what he knows he should be doing and what he ought to be doing. And so he says that it is this law of sin in his flesh that is taking him captive. And so he's looking at the way that this is sort of like enslaving him to do the things that he doesn't want to do, that he knows is wrong. And so he's looking for how, what is the answer to this whole problem of sin in his flesh, in which I do think this is a result of the primal sin of Adam. This is what sin is. It's a, you can say, corruption of what we are as human beings, of what God originally created us to be. Uh, the innocence and perfection of our being in Eden was then changed. It was, it was changed in, in a way that then everybody who came after Adam and Eve have been changed in that same way, resulting from that sin. And that is what the flesh, that's what Paul uses metaphorically as the flesh. I mean, it's not that our, our, the cells in our body are inherently evil in themselves. No, there's something in our bodies that Paul cause calls the flesh and he calls the sin that is in our members that is coming about because of Adam's sin. And we struggle then to do the things that we should do in accordance with God's will because of the of the power of our flesh and the power of our sin. Now, Keegan's point was actually you can overcome all that. You can rise above it. You can live a perfect life. You know, he, I think he's referring to something like uh, Romans 6. Well, let me interrupt here, and we can get back to that. When you're talking about the flesh, the Ephesians 2 text comes to mind for me. And I don't know if the word flesh occurs there. I don't think it does, but... Uh, oh, no, it does in verse 3. So let me just read this out. Ephesians 2, 1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. I know that Keegan is not done with his working out of his position here, uh, but I would encourage him to to give an exegesis of, of this text, because this does seem to be a very strong text arguing for, as far as I understand it, a default position where by default or by nature, we as humans are dead in our trespasses and sins. And it, here it's not specifically mentioning Adam. It's talking about in which we once walked, that we once lived in this rebellious way, and that really... We were following a course 
that is determined by the devil more than anything else that worked its way out in our lives by our passions and our flesh and, and these sorts of things. So I think this is an important text to think about. Now, my question to you, Jerry, is on the other side, the, the side that really Keegan's fighting against in this presentation, which is the notion later called total depravity, which Augustine really developed in to a large degree as a corruption of the will that the will itself, the human will, is so fallen, so tainted, that we cannot choose God. We cannot do righteous things. That even if we did something righteous, it's tainted by our motivations, which are, are selfish. So it seems like what, you, what we're doing here is staking out this middle position between the Eastern Orthodox Church and the... Uh, what, what later became known as the Reformed position, or if you're from a Catholic uh, perspective and you're super Augustinian, that's a Jacobite position. But between these two positions, one that says, hey, th- there is no inherited corruption of the, of the moral will, and then the other position that says, it's so corrupted you can't ever even choose God, uh, where do you fall and how do you sort of escape the force of Ephesians 2, 1, 2, and 3 that seems to indicate that we are totally hopelessly lost. I think it's good that you point out uh, the Ephesians 2 passage here because uh, I didn't touch on it, but it relates directly to inherited sin, I believe, especially in verse 3, where Paul writes that we were by nature children of wrath. Uh, I I would argue and ask for... Keegan to explain what about our nature makes us children of God's wrath. You know, and I think also in verse five that we were dead in transgressions. I think this is an allusion to the fact that we were born dead in those transgressions by nature. Our nature makes us dead. We are dead by our nature meaning that we don't have uh, eternal life within us. We are not in a right relationship with God when we are born. That is why we need Christ. Now, let me move on to what you're asking about regarding, uh, can we actually ever choose God of ourselves, or are we just bound in our will to then choose to sin? Or are we completely neutral, and we can choose sin one day and choose and, and choose to do what's right the, other, the next day, and we have no internal compulsion toward one or the other? Uh, I think that we do have uh, what is theologically called a fallen nature. I think the sin in our flesh leads us to tend to disobey God. We have an inherent orientation from birth to not want to obey God. In our spirit or in our self, we want to be selfish. We want to look out for ourselves. We want to satisfy ourselves uh, and so I think that we, we do have this bent toward evil and sin and wickedness. But I don't think that our will is completely constrained in the sense that we can do nothing other than that, which would be the position of like Augustine and other Reformed theologians uh, under the category of total depravity, where every person apart from Christ cannot do any good thing. They are completely depraved. I think that there's part of us um, which is tainted or corrupted in which 
uh, that is our default to choose not God. But I think that there is part of our will that is free to then choose God if we desire. It's kind of a self-denial thing. And I think God empowers people through his grace and draws them to himself. But we have to answer that that drawing of God. It's not that God forces us to come to himself in the sense that maybe a Reformed theologian would say that uh, God gives irresistible grace, and therefore that person then has no choice but to turn to God uh, because of the grace. I think uh, more of something like uh, prevenient grace or grace that God gives to a person that then they see and understand God and then can choose if they want God or not. If they choose and they want God, I think that when they receive God's spirit, that then is a turning point in which new life is put into the person through God's spirit of which they can then overcome the flesh in ways that they could never do beforehand. I think that's what Paul is trying to talk about when we're supposed to not let sin reign in our mortal bodies and we're supposed to yield ourselves as instruments of righteousness, not to be slaves of sin and things like that. I think that that is a conscious, voluntary choice of a person Because even Christians can choose sin if they want. You know, they're not compelled to avoid sin and and, and to live righteously. Uh, And so I think that it's kind of the way that our our nature or our current disposition is perverted and distorted because of sin. And until we are united with Christ and receive the life that Christ has for us, we have this natural tendency to sin. But with Christ in our lives, we have another course by which we can walk, another power within us by which we can choose to obey and follow, and that can help us overcome the effects of Adam's sin in our lives that then can yield righteousness to where we can follow after God. Now, do I think that people can live a life of complete perfection? I've only known one person to ever do that. And so unless Keegan knows other people who have, um, I would say his argument has zero empirical data behind it and is just completely theoretical. There's no reason that I could think of why we have to sin as Christians unless you accept that we still have this fallen nature within us, even once we've been redeemed, right? Mm -hmm. It's curtailed because of Christ's work and the Spirit's influence, but it's not completely demolished, right? Yeah, no, the the mar of Adam's sin is indelibly upon every single human being until Christ comes back and mortality is swallowed up with immortality and death is swallowed up in victory with by life and, and when we are resurrected to new bodies. Is there anything else that you would like to add in here at the end? that we didn't get to, or maybe you'd like to summarize or anything? Well, let me just say another uh, thanks to Keegan for, you know, all of his historical work. And I'm actually really curious uh, to hear kind of some of his responses, because I think he didn't have enough time to fully develop his theological views at the end of his presentation. Mm -hmm. All right. Very good. Well, thanks. Appreciate it. You're welcome. I'd love to hear what you thought about that episode and Jerry Werewolf's presentation here. I'm really excited that Restitutio can be a place where honest-hearted Christians can have a disagreement like this and where we can listen in and do the hard work of 
studying the Bible and figuring out which side is right on this. I mean, I think this is important work for us all to be doing. And to that end, I've got another two episodes lined up for you where uh, we're willing Chandler are going to be in conversation with each other. And so in case you're curious, well, what, what would Keegan Chandler say in response to what we just heard? Well, you're going to find out. And you're going to find out what Weirwell would say in response to the response and so on. So the idea here is to really get into this subject. And obviously, we're not going to cover every single verse and nuance every little argument because it would just take forever. But we'll be able to do at least an overview of everything and really thoroughly consider it within the series of these four episodes. A number of people have been writing in, and I wanted to read out some comments. Anna and John Brown wrote in, Sean, we have on the last episode, 321, Origins of Sin with Keegan Chandler, they wrote, we have learned to suspend disbelief and listen to the end of each Restitutio podcast episode. And it paid off again. What a wonderful thing to look into. We are excited to learn more about and wrestle with this topic. It would be wonderful to be able to change our thinking in this area and with it, realize that we really are empowered to vanquish sin. Looking forward to the next episode. Kevin George writes, Excellent episode. Part of the problem that a lot of people have is their definition of sin. Sin is an act, an action, whether mental or physical, that takes place at a point in time. Sin is not a commodity that can be bought or sold. Sin is not a feeling. Sin is not even a temptation. Sin is a choice that results in an act. Sins are actions that take place in time and cannot be transferred to a different time or a different actor. Yes, sins can have a payment or be paid for, but in this sense, we are using the word payment or paid as a metaphor for the word consequence. Just as if you tell someone taking drugs, you will pay a price for taking drugs. You do not mean price literally, but rather metaphorically. In the same sense, the wages of sin is death means that the consequence of sin is death not that someone can die to literally pay for sin. As Chandler said, the topic is far greater than what he was able to develop in his allotted time. But I agree that it is a subject that has vast implications and needs to be attended to seriously. Jesus came so we could be freed from sinning and thus be able to stop offending God and then be reconciled. He did not come to literally pay God so we could sin without guilt or consequences. In Matthew 1.21, the angel told Joseph to take Mary because, quote, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins, end quote. Igor Kocheli, sorry if I mispronounced that, my Polish is pretty much non-existent, writes, this is probably one of the most important breakthroughs in modern theology. Whoa, big statement there. Thanks, Sean, for sharing this talk. Looking forward to hearing the response of others. I believe that it not only affects Christian life and behavior, but our Christology as well. Carlos writes in, My breakthrough moment was finding the answer to the question sometimes posed by our opponents. If Jesus is not God, how did he keep himself sinless? Because he chose to obey God. As simple as that sounds. Like Abram and Moses before him, they believed God, held on to faith. See Hebrews 11. Brian Stokes wrote in, I see a weakness in Keegan's biblical condition. He uses verses that are addressed to believers about living in Christ and acts as if those verses are addressed to the subject of original sin. 
a person's state after conversion is transformed. The verses that he primarily cites at the end of the presentation are written to a new creature, not about their prior state. Due to this misapplication of verses, he, Keegan, then forms non-sequiturs suggesting or leading towards we as believers can live perfect without sin lives. He that says he has no sin is a liar. That last comment was made by the Apostle John to believers. Irene responds back and, and writes, He that says he has no sin is no way is in no way the same statement as he that says he has stopped sinning. A lot of thoughts here on the topic of original sin, uh, which, which touches on both the idea of inherited sin, that we inherit not only the consequence of sin from our first parents, that would be mortality and exclusion from the Garden of Eden, but also a propensity towards sin, a re- an innate rebellion against God, this sort of thing, often called the flesh or sin nature. And then there's this, the, really the whole second area of what does salvation do to the human condition? Do we still have the flesh even though we are saved? Are we now able to, because of Christ's shed blood and because of the, and the empowering of the Holy Spirit, live without sin in our present time? So these are important questions for us to wrestle with and to think about as we move forward. If you have an opinion on this that you would like to share, please come on to restitutio.org and look for episode 322, Inherited Sin in Romans 5 with Jerry Weirwell, and leave your comment. Thanks, everyone, for writing in. I'll catch you next week. If you'd like to support Restitutio, you you can make a donation on restitutio.org. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.